God, we come to you this morning and we, Lord, ask for your help today as we understand your word. God, we do not want to hear from a mere man today. We do not want to hear man's opinion on this passage. We want to hear from you, the living God. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your word would truly do the work today. We believe that your word is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, we come today as your people with an open heart wanting to be pierced by your word. God, we wanna be changed by it. We know that your word has power and authority. And so, God, would you change us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. On June 25th, 1967, around 700 million people across 24 countries tuned in to the international broadcast known as Our World. This was the largest televised event at that time, and it was the first ever live version of the Beatles' hit song, All You Need Is Love. That song is a simple song with a simple message. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. The Beatles' uh, manager, Brian Epstein, said this about the song. It said, he said, it was an inspired song, and they really wanted to give the, the world a message. The nice thing about it is that it cannot be misinterpreted. It is a clear message saying that love is everything. The song was written at the height of the Vietnam War and in many ways became the anthem for the movement known as the Summer of Love, which advocated the end to the war and in some ways became kind of the song for the sexual revolution in the 1960s. But who could argue with the message of this song, with the lyrics, with what Brian Epstein said, all you need is love, all you need is love, love is all you need. It sounds so Christian, doesn't it, right? Christianity is about love, right? God's love for us, our love for others, our love for God. And yet I wonder if the Apostle Paul would agree with that song. I wonder if the Apostle Paul would agree with the message behind this song. I wonder if, if Paul would, would respond and say, well, it, it depends on what you mean by love. Are we talking about a worldly love or are we talking about a biblical love? See, the Beatles and Brian Epstein were wrong. Sorry to dash many of your hopes. But what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love cannot possibly be everything. Love must be defined. Love must be uh, grounded in scripture or else it loses its value, it loses its substance. If love is truly everything, then love can mean whatever you want it to mean. And 1 Corinthians 13 is going to push up against that. 1 Corinthians 13 is uh, known as the love chapter in the Bible. This is one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. Uh, you're going to see uh, these verses on, on different T-shirts, on coffee mugs, uh, on tattoos. You're, you're going to see this as kind of the go-to passage in many weddings. And yet, uh, the, the way that we understand this passage is so often detached from its context, so often we, we read this passage and we say to ourselves, wow, Paul, what, what beautiful penmanship. 
What, what, what lovely poetry, what, what stunning word choice here. And yet that is not the intent from the apostle Paul. Paul was not trying to, to write 1 Corinthians 13 to make the Corinthian church feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside, right? This is not some cute description of what love is. This is not to make you feel cozy and comfortable and sentimental because when you understand this passage in light of the context, this passage will first pierce you with conviction before it moves you with emotion. This passage here is a strong rebuke by the Apostle Paul. So the question that we need to begin with is, why this chapter on love and why here? This is kind of a strange placement if you're the Apostle Paul. Why does he sandwich chapter 13 with chapter 12 about spiritual gifts, about unity, with chapter 14 about more spiritual gifts and about uh, orderly corporate worship? This kind of feels like, like an interruption to the flow of the Apostle Paul, if you've read 1 Corinthians before. But one thing that we're going to understand about chapter 13 is that what Paul is doing is he is changing the framework by which the Corinthians understood and pursued Christian maturity by helping them reprioritize love. That's what he's after here. And the challenge here is that the Corinthians knew that they needed to love others, right? That's Christianity 101. Remember, the Apostle Paul, he, he spent over 18 months with the Corinthian church. No doubt, he emphasized the necessity to love others. No doubt, Paul reminded them of Jesus's words in John chapter 13, verse 35, where he said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, and yet one thing that we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians is that this church was actually doing the opposite of verses four through seven, that they were not patient, they were not kind. In fact, we've seen this church be argumentative, be divisive. They've elevated themselves above one another. They've, they've been comparing and competing with one another about who's most gifted, who has the most wisdom, who has uh, the, the most influence or, or the best status. They have celebrated wrongdoing, chapter five with that church discipline case. They've insisted on their own way with their Christian liberty, with conscience issues. And so when we come to chapter 13, this in many ways is the solution to a lot of the problems going on at the church in Corinth. In many ways, this is almost the apex of the letter here. And Paul is going to challenge us with how we understand love. So the first thing I wanna point out about love that Paul emphasizes here is the superiority of love, that love is indispensable for any healthy, thriving church. Now, at the end of chapter 12, there's a, a really important verse there I don't wanna skip over. In most translations, it says something to the effect of, and I will show you a still more excellent way. All right, Paul's referring to love there as he kind of transitions into chapter 13, and that's true. But more precisely in the original language here, that phrase could actually be translated as beyond measuring or beyond 
comparison. Again, referring to love in light of all the spiritual gifts. And I think that's important because in the Corinthian church, they were obsessed with comparing themselves. They were obsessed with measuring themselves with one another about who is more gifted, about who does have the better status. And so Paul here in chapter 13 is calling the Corinthian church to live a type of lifestyle that is above the comparison trap, that is above constantly measuring themselves with one another and finding their worth by comparing themselves horizontally. And the solution to that comparison trap is love. It's prioritizing love above all. Now, notice what Paul says here in these first three verses. These are three conditional sentences here. And these would have been very sobering for the Corinthians to hear. These three statements, the way that you can view these, these are almost like a magnifying glass into the true condition of the Corinthian church. All right, these statements expose, each of them expose what the Corinthians were prioritizing above love. And so he's pressing in on their priorities here, trying to move them towards elevating love to its rightful place. Notice here in verse one, Paul says that if you speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, it's just a noisy gong. So for the Corinthian church, they were elevating speech above love. And what Paul means here when he's talking about the tongues of men and of angels, this is to speak eloquently. This is to speak powerfully, even uh, to speak in tongues. This is a person who always knows what to say, who, who's a good communicator. But, but Paul says, if you don't have love, th then you're just a clanging symbol. That's a metaphor for being empty and hollow. Verse two, we see another high priority the Corinthians had above love, and that is knowledge. Paul says, if you have the ability to, to prophesy and if you have understanding and, and you have faith to move mountains, but have not love, it is nothing. And I don't know about you, but, but it's verse two there, the, the knowledge piece that I found most convicting out of these three. We're gonna see speech, knowledge, and then sacrifice, but it's the knowledge piece that had a piercing in my own heart as, as far as conviction. And, and our church, I mean, we are... We are a church that loves theology. We, we have a, a high emphasis on the authority of God's word. We, we love to be on the, the deep end of doctrine, and rightfully so. Like we are unapologetic about one of our church core values to be driven by the word, right? We want every believer to be driven by God's word. We don't want to be driven by culture. We do not want to be driven by the media. We do not want to be driven by a particular political party or to be driven by the entertainment world or to be driven by our own emotions. We want to be driven by the authority of God's word because it is sufficient. And that's why we emphasize God's word here on Sundays as we gather together. But Paul's point here is that you can master this book you can memorize this book. You can have all of your theological paradigms all organized and, and all neat, but if you do not have love, it is nothing. That is so convicting. I mean, how much time, how much energy 
do we spend in knowing the right things, but also in loving the right way, right? They are very, very connected. And in verse three, we see another priority that the Corinthians had over love, and that is sacrifice. Paul says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Wow, I mean, just, just imagine getting to the place in your life where you give away all that you have. Empty the bank accounts, sell your house, sell your cars, give it all away. Like that, that type of radical generosity, that type of radical sacrifice would probably be picked up on the news. It probably, you might go viral on social media. The, the world might even say, ah, oh, that's what a good Christian looks like. But the Apostle Paul would not agree unless you were motivated out of love. If the reason you did all that was because of love, you can be the most generous person, the most sacrificial person on the planet, but without the motivation of love, it does not matter. Look, these three verses are, are hard-hitting, and yet Paul is not arguing to, to throw away these three gifts of speech, knowledge, and sacrifice. Paul is arguing for the absolute supremacy and necessity of love if one is truly a Christian. Love must be prioritized above all. So, so the question for you this morning is what are you pursuing above love? When you look at your life, what are you prioritizing above love? Maybe you're thinking this morning, well, I don't really struggle with the speech, knowledge, and sacrifice and, and putting that above love. Okay, well, let's maybe apply it in different areas. Maybe we could read these verses. I wonder if the Apostle Paul would say, if I am the best parent or the best grandparents but have not love, then it doesn't matter. Could the Apostle Paul say, if I am most efficient or effective with my time or my job, but have not love, it doesn't matter. If I have the correct position on all matters in life, if I am right, but have not love, then it doesn't matter. See, what in your life needs to be descended above love today? And I just wonder if, if the reason why we lack the right priority of love in our lives, I wonder, if it's because love has become so cliche in the, in the Christian life, we, we emphasize love so much. I mean, that is Christianity 101. We always talk about love for God and love for others. And I just wonder if love is so familiar that it's oftentimes just assumed in our lives. Like it's just something that we know, but we're not actually practicing on a consistent basis. Well, one thing that this passage is going to do, it's going to wake us up to the reality of what biblical love actually is, and it's going to call us to investing in loving others the way that we should. And so the, the second thing I wanna point out as far as understanding love is the multifaceted diamond of love. Okay, in verses four through eight, love is the subject of 15 verbs in a row. Every phrase here, love is the subject. So if you think about love for a moment as a diamond, what Paul is doing here is he's showing us 15 different facets 
of what love actually is with the following characteristics. What's unfortunate about the way that this is translated is that these feel like passive static adjectives, but that's not how it is in the original. In the original, these are in verbal form. So it's not just that love is patient or love is kind, but love shows patience or love acts with kindness. And what we see here is that love is a working, active dynamic, not just something that gives you warm, fuzzy feelings. Okay, love is is always finding ways to express itself for the good of others. And so the way to read this, this is not a flowery description of love. This isn't something in the abstract. This is what love does. Love is an action. Love is a choice. Love is a a servant of the will and not a victim of our emotion and the perfect set of circumstances. Okay, so let's walk through each of these 15 characteristics. Okay, the first one here that you'll see is that love is patient or that love has a, a long forbearance toward one another. Love is, is patient in the sense that it can, it can actually hold intention in the mind before it gives rise to passion. Okay, in essence, what Paul is saying here is that love has a long fuse. It takes a long time, if you are truly loving, for you to burst into flames onto someone else. Like love endures injury after injury after injury without retaliation. I just wanna stop here on the first one. Like, is that true of you today? Like, have you passed the first test already? Like thinking about if you are patient, are you patient in traffic? Are you patient at a restaurant when your food is taking longer than it ought? Are you patient when when people are rude to you or when you don't get your way? Are you patient? Well, that's just the first one. Let's move to the second one here. Love is kind. Okay, this means love reacts with goodness towards others, even if they don't deserve it. Okay, and something about kindness, and you'll see signs everywhere of the last year and a half, just be kind, but that is so easy to state, but it's so much harder to actually live out, to be kind. And I think there's an element of kindness where I think to be a kind person, you have the ability to recognize that every person is carrying a heavy load. Every person is in a battle, whether you see it or not. Every person is battling maybe fear or anxiety or pressure or stress. Every person is in a temptation. Every person is battling maybe despair. And kindness assumes that about every person they interact with and treats them accordingly. They have a tenderheartedness about the way that they show goodness to them. And we are called to be kind, even if you disagree with people, even if there are different uh, um, understandings within our preferences. Love is kind. Now, the next few here that Paul gives us are, are descriptions of what love is not. Okay, so the first one here is that love does not envy. Okay, this means that, that you don't have these negative feelings or emotions towards another person because of their success or because of their accomplishments. And I think a really good test to know if you have envy in your heart towards someone else is by noticing your heart's reaction 
when someone has something that you want, but you don't have? How do you respond in that moment in your own heart, right? Let's say you're, you're scrolling on social media and you see that picture of that perfect looking family, right? All the kids are smiling, they've got matching outfits, and you think to yourself, man, like our kids just had like a wrestling match and a screaming match for an hour today. I wish I had that. Maybe they had a, the, the beach in the background and you thought to yourself, man, I haven't gone on vacation in years, right? How do you respond when someone has something that you want that you don't have, when someone has that car that you want, that house that you want, that, that spouse that you want, those, those kids that you want or the behavior of those kids that you want, that body shape that you want. How do you respond? Do you respond with joy for them? Because that's what love does. Or does envy whisper in your heart, not only I want that, but envy says I need that. See, love does not do that. Love also, moving on here, does not boast. Love is not arrogant, love is not rude, meaning love is not braggy, it's not arrogant, it's not puffed up with pride. Love is not self-centered or egotistical. Love doesn't walk around in a way that says, look at me, look at me, look at me. And look, I think that this one's a little bit tricky for us, just kind of thinking about boasting and arrogance and rude or being puffed up with pride. Like, there's an obvious way to do that, and I think for us as adults, we've gotten pretty good at not doing the obvious boasting, right? We've gotten pretty good at maybe hiding that, but there's also a more sneaky way that arrogance and even pride shows up in our lives. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you're in a conversation with a group of people, and the topic is topic A. And topic A for you is hard because you don't have a lot to say, like you don't, you don't have a lot of understanding. It doesn't put you in a positive light. And what's worse is that topic A actually puts everybody else in a positive light. What arrogance does in a sneaky way, what being puffed up with pride does in a sneaky way is that it tends to hijack that conversation, change it from topic A to topic B. And topic B puts you in a positive light, puts you as the focus, shines a spotlight on you. And love does not do that. In fact, Paul puts it in verse five, love does not insist on its own way. Or in some translations, love is not self-seeking. Okay, this means that love is not enamored with the self. Love, love rarely thinks about the self. And so the, the way that love approaches relationships and people and situations and environments is not what can I get, but love approaches each of those things with what can I give? How can I serve? How can I put my preferences to the side and love others? The next one here is love is not irritable. It's not resentful. All right, this means to hold on to grudges or to harbor being wronged. This means that love, love is not easily angered. Love is not easily offended. It's, it's hard to annoy someone who is loving. Is that true of you this morning? Does it take a little bit to set you off or does it take a, a lot to set you off? 
The next one here is that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Some translations have love does not keep record of wrongs. Man, that's convicting. Are you the type of person, officially or unofficially, who keeps tally of people who have wronged you, people who have upset you, people who have annoyed you? Husband and wife, don't look at each other right now. But this is a big one. Like, how can you have a loving, thriving community of believers if you're constantly keeping track of people who have upset you, annoyed you, or wronged you? See, true biblical love not only doesn't keep score, but if you're loving, it's hard to offend you. Love just absorbs wrongdoing after wrongdoing after wrongdoing. First Peter 4, 8 says, above all, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. The next one, love rejoices with the truth. Right? Love doesn't compromise truth. Love doesn't suppress truth. Love doesn't celebrate half-truths. It rejoices with the truth. And look, I think sometimes we can become such truth warriors that in the process, we can actually be very unloving. And we can almost justify it by saying, well, I'm right, or I'm standing on truth, I'm defending truth. And Paul certainly doesn't want us to compromise truth, but notice the word choice. He says love rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't beat people over the head with truth, right? And I think the call here is to build bridges of grace that can hold the weight of truth, right? Biblical truth is never devoid of love and vice versa. The next one here, I'll close with this one. It says, love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things things. These descriptions here does not imply that love is gullible, but Paul's point here is that love never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. Love always perseveres. Look, before I move on, I, I just wonder who needs to hear that right now in this moment? as I was praying and, and preparing, this is the verse that just stood out to me as a verse, just a pause for a moment. I wonder if there are people here today where you are tempted right now to give up on somebody in your life because it's too hard, to just stop loving, to, to kind of tap out, that, that maybe you're tempted to do that towards a spouse right now in your season of life. Maybe you're tempted to do that with a child or with a parent or with a friend or with a coworker. But, but notice the calling here. The calling is that love always perseveres. Love never gives up. In fact, Gordon Fee, one of the commentators here says this. It says that there is nothing love cannot face. Love has a tenacity in the present buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future that enables it to live in every kind of circumstance and continually to pour itself out in behalf of others. Like I gotta ask you right now in this moment, who is the Lord putting on your heart as far as verses four through seven as something that you need to live out more consistently towards? 
Who is it in your life that you need to love better, more consistently in your life? These verses are convicting. Like, like these, are, these are hard to understand as far as how do I practically live this out? And I think it would serve us well today to ask the question, where does this kind of love come from? Like, how do we live these out? We, we all wanna be verses four through seven, but how? Does, is the answer found from within? Do we look to ourselves? Do we look at ourselves in the mirror and pump ourselves up every day? Do we have kind of a renewed motivation, a new resolution? Do we kind of, you know, put, invest more energy and strength into possibly living these outs? Look, I, I wanna say this as lovingly as possible this morning. The answer to this passage is not you. In fact, you are the problem. Like the self is the issue that's keeping you from living out verses four through seven. Like, if you don't believe me, let's play a game for a moment. My staff always gets nervous when I say that, but let's just play a game. Let's take the word love and exchange it for your name, just for a moment, and see how accurate it is, right? Like, if, if you're the answer, if it's all up to you and, and kind of this renewed motivation, let's play. And I'll just do my name for a moment. Chris is patient and kind. Chris does not envy or boast. Chris is not arrogant or rude. Chris does not insist on its own way. Chris is not irritable or resentful. Chris does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Chris bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Look, how'd you do? Like, we tend to read these verses with someone else's name, don't we? We tend to read these verses and we insert our spouse, we insert our child, we insert our parents, we insert a coworker or a friend. But how are you doing with these verses? If you're like me, you didn't get very far before you said, man, I'm failing at these verses. Why? Why do we struggle with verses four through seven so much? Christianity is about love. Why is this so hard for us? I think this is so hard because oftentimes our love is self-focused. Our love is based on what can I get in return? I think another reason why we struggle to love is because for a lot of us, our, our love is based on how we feel. Our love is based on, on our emotion in that particular moment. Like we don't say this out loud, but we tend to live out this sentiment of, I'm going to love others if I feel like it. And I think honestly, we, we allow our feelings to have a stronger influence on our obedience to love than almost anything else in life, and we hate to admit that, but our behavior screams it. I think an emotion-centric Christian, meaning, someone whose obedience to God is based primarily on how they feel is an immature Christian. A type of Christian who says, I will pray if I feel like it. I will read the Bible if I feel like it. I will come to church if I feel like it. I will love others if I feel like it. I will obey if I feel like it. And again, you may not say that, but look at your behavior. 
Look at the last week and notice how dominant your emotions are in your ability to obey God, especially as you love others. And look, this isn't to say that feelings have no role. They're important, they're real, but love cannot be authoritative in your life. And I fear that there are too many Christians whose obedience is being held captive by their emotions, and it should not be so. Look, church, there, there is coming a day, and it's gonna be here before we know it, where almost every act of obedience in the Christian life will go so against the grain of culture that it will be very, very uncomfortable for you to obey God. It's coming sooner than you think, where obeying God, obeying his word will make you very uncomfortable in this world and in this culture. And we must obey God and not man. We must obey God, not our emotions, no matter the cost. Look, I say this lovingly, but if you think right now it's hard to be a Christian, you think right now this is difficult? You think right now because of who's in the White House or whatever's going on that this is, that this is hard? Look, church, just wait. It, it's going to get worse. In fact, look at church history. The, the normative experience for the Christian is difficult. It's uncomfortable. It's not fun. It's not easy at all. And, and as a pastor, look, I say this as loving as possible and as a warning today, if you are a Christian right now who is living predominantly based on how you feel, you will not last. You will not persevere. If your obedience to God, your ability to live out what this book says is based on how you feel, is based on the right circumstances in life, when real persecution comes, not the government telling you to wear a mask, but real persecution comes, biblical persecution comes, what will you stand upon? It has to be the word of God. Look, your feelings are a terrible conductor in your life, but a wonderful caboose. And I say that as loving as possible. Look, we don't love consistently, yes, because we are often self-focused. We don't love consistently, oftentimes, because of our feelings-centric nature in the Christian life. But can I tell you what the biggest reason is why we don't love? I think the biggest reason, this is the, the primary reason we don't love consistently, is because our hearts have not been captured by God's love for us on a regular basis. Like we know God loves us theologically, we know it intellectually, but to be stunned on a regular basis that God loves me? I mean, honestly, how much of a cliche has that become in your life? Where you know it, but are you experiencing it deep within your soul? Has it captured you? Has it consumed you? Look, 1 John 4, 7 says, let us love one another, for love comes where? comes from our emotions, comes from the right set of circumstances, comes because this person treated me well. 
No, it says, let us love one another for love comes from God. First John 4, 19 says, we love, just a few verses later, we love because he first loved us. Or the answer here for us being set free from the comparison trap, being set free from being enslaved to our feelings, being set free from being self-focused is God and his love. So here's the call. The call is for you to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The answer here is not a push for you to perform better. It's not a push for you to be more moralistic. The push here is to look to Jesus. Let me show you why. Jesus perfectly embodies all of these characteristics. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on its own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful, praise God. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Because wonderful as verses four, th four through seven are in giving us a picture of how to live out love, to truly be empowered to love as we ought comes back to Jesus. That we first bask in who he is and his love for us that results in us actually being transformed to loving others. And so as we close today, like I just want us to even leave this place being so stunned at God's love for us today that we're able to be transformed and live this out. So to do that, let, let me ask you a question that I've been, I've been meditating on that's helped me to just be wowed by God's love and wrestling with this question. This is for the Christians in this room. When did God first start loving you? When did it begin for you in your life? When did he first set his loving affection upon you? Was it when you first acknowledged his lordship? Nope, it's before that. Was it when you, you felt convicted about your sin and you walked down that aisle and prayed a prayer? Mm -mm, it's before that. Was it when you had a, a powerful experience of his love in a sermon or a song or a book and you responded with a sinner's prayer? Nope, it's before that. Is before your teen years, is before you were a child, is before you were even a thought in your parents' minds. Was it when Jesus died on the cross in your place? Is that when his love first began? No, it was before that. In fact, if you take the Bible and you go all the way to the beginning, go to Genesis, it was before that. Like Ephesians chapter one tells us this, verse five, it says, in love... God predestined us for adoption, to be adopted into his family. So, so when did that happen? When did he put his love upon us? Well, verse four, the verse before that says this, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for this reality. Look, look at me for a moment. God did not first start loving you when you finally got your act together spiritually. God did not first start loving you when you prayed that sinner's prayer, when you finally cleaned yourself up morally, 
when you started to come to church, when you started to obey. No, God first started loving you before the foundations of the world was even laid. Praise be to God for that, that God loves us, not because of us, but despite us. Romans 5.8 says that God takes his love and he demonstrated, he put it on display while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you were at your worst, he displayed that love. He showed you his love by sending his one and only son, his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners. Again, not because of you, but despite you, because it is his nature to love. He displays and shows his never-ending, eternal, soul-satisfying love for you. Not only to forgive us, but so that we might be filled with his love to give to others. Jesus said again, John 13, the whole world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the ultimate test. The ultimate test is does the world, do your non-Christian neighbors and friends and coworkers know that you're a Christian because of the way that you love? As we close today, We've covered a lot of ground and a lot of things to, to chew on, to reflect. I, I just wanna give us just a couple of moments today. I want you to take two or three minutes here. I want you just to reflect on these questions before we sing this last song. Just ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to move you towards change, but ultimately to be filled with God's love for you. Let me pray for our time of reflection. God, I pray, Lord, in these moments that you would stir, that you would convict, that you would show us, God, Lord, where we need to love better, and ultimately, Lord, where we need to be wowed by your love for us. God, give us an open heart right now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.